Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we have Christine Lemke with us. And Christine has a wonderful background, which I'll probably mess up. And the reason why she's on Flyover Labs is her current role as a president and co-founder of Evidation. And, uh, and we're going to learn more about it. But Evidation works with the healthcare networks to improve health, out- health outcomes while uh, making hospitals and everyone more efficient. At least I think that's it. So we're going to learn more. And uh, so there she leads strategy and research and uh, special projects. And, uh, and prior to co-founding Evidation, she was the co-founder and CEO of Sense Networks, which was the developers of a machine learning platform for mobile phone activity data, which was acquired by uh, YP.com. And that sounds interesting, too. So we should uh, talk a little bit about that. And then she can tell you about her. Uh, she's had a, a lot of other interesting roles with uh xbox and uh channel iq and so like i said she has a, a quite a rich background so uh christine we definitely appreciate you uh, coming on the show today thanks for having me so maybe that's maybe your background is a good place to start since i probably uh destroyed some of your background maybe just to kind of give a an overview of um some of the roles that you've really liked and kind of shaped who you are who you are and then we'll get more into kind of what you're working on now. Great. It sounds good. Well, my background is, um, at first glance, really, uh, really different, I would say. Um, I think the common thread in all the things that you mentioned, my work at Sense Network, my work at uh, Microsoft and the Xbox division, my work um, at Channel IQ and so forth, has the connector of um, data analytics and all of them. So to each one of these functions, uh, I was either managing products or teams uh, to do data analytics to improve you know, something about the product or services that we offered, um, or in some cases, find the right people who are most appropriate for whatever offer um, somebody had to give to them. So Sense Networks is a great example of, um, you know, for a long time, marketing was using what I'll call static demographic profiles or market research-driven profiles that tended to be fairly static to figure out how to match people with the right advertisement. So if I'm, you know, Hilton Hotels, I might, you know, hire a market research firm and say, here are all the character qualities of somebody who uh, is a typical Hilton Hotels customer. And so we'll run a campaign and we'll target all these people by their demographic qualities. It could potentially be where they lived. It could potentially be what their income is. It could potentially be whether they're male or female, um, what their employment uh, character might be, et cetera. And we're going to send them an ad and hopefully pray someday they might click on that ad. Uh, but as things started to move very digital, and especially as things started to move mobile, there was a whole new set of data that we could take advantage of as marketers in order to find the right people in the right moment where if you presented them with an offer from Hilton Hotel, they might, they might accept that offer more readily. Uh, and so Sense Networks is really trying to um, you know, take new types of data off the mobile phone, um, and this could be location data, so data that updates in real time. Um, this could be you know, calling patterns or texting patterns or things like that, and match uh, offers 
to the right people in the right situation. So not just the right people from a demographic sense, but the right situation where they might be planning travel if you're Hilton Hotel to hotels, or um, the right characteristics of people based on their travel pattern. So, you know, things like frequent business travelers might be able to light up in a location data set much easier than just making static or heuristic assumptions about the character of those people or the demographics of those people. Um, and so that's really what Sense Networks did, and that type of thing tends to work really well. And uh, we thought, where else um, could we apply this behavioral analytics, we call it, um, in order to improve something in the world? And, um, you know, instead of maybe improving ad clicks or improving, you know, more phones that people buy or more <laughs> Hilton hotel rooms that people sell, we thought, wow, there's lots of people in healthcare right now trying to understand behavior change. And it makes sense to us that in order to change behavior, you probably need to understand behavior at scale um, in order to change behavior. And so couldn't we apply all those analytics um, and all that thinking, all that work um, to the healthcare sector and, you know, build a really great company that not only helps healthcare help people better, but make sure that patients get matched with the right care in the right situation. Um, and so that was really the motivation for starting Evidation. Um, and all through my career, you know, just sort of an early fascination with uh, the power of real-time streaming data that was coming from all sorts of sensors on things. Um, and so all of this started kind of in supply chain, actually. Supply chain was one of the first places where, you know, sensors were on boxes everywhere. Sensors were on trucks everywhere. And so there were lots of interesting things that you could do in analyzing that sensor data in order to optimize things in the real world. Um, that was Channel IQ. And um, Microsoft Xbox is analyzing some of the data on the Xbox in order to, in this case, like figure out some of the problem areas in the Xbox and fix them. Gotcha. And so with uh, that's a, a quite a good overview. Thank you. And the, with uh, Sense Networks and 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 with Evidation, but how did you get access to that data? Because I'm always curious. You know, were you working with, directly mm -hmm. with the mobile app uh, companies, or working with ad networks? Because uh, you know, I, I think it evolved. Um, so you know, Sense Networks when we started it, it was in 2000, um, 2006, I think. Um, Gosh, it's been a long time. Uh, so initially, there wasn't a lot of phone data, right? There wasn't a lot of um, location data being emitted from cell phones because if you remember, it was pre-iPhone. Uh, some people had Blackberries, but location wasn't um, persistent across all these devices like it is today. Most people have smartphones, so there's lots of location data available. Um, and so the early data set that we started with at Sense Networks was actually taxi cab data from the city of New York, believe it or not, and huh. from different cities around the country, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera. Um, and so those were our first, like, location behavior signals so we could figure out sort of how the city behaves based on all these location signals. And, and, and literally, that's what we cut our teeth on. That's what we cut some of our um, system on. That's how we built some of our system. That's how we, you know, created our first set of algorithms, et cetera, until we got to the point where we could forge partnerships with big telecommunications companies who of course had tons of location data. Gotcha. So with the taxi cabs, what were you, I'm just curious, what were you analyzing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a little kooky uh, <laughs> in the early days of taxi cabs, location data analysis. Uh, we were looking for signals on, um, man, this is going to sound really kooky now. <laughs> uh, we, we were, 
we were trying to figure out whether there was um, more traffic or less traffic basically in and out of different retail areas in a city um, and literally like working with hedge funds to figure out, well, are we bullish about the economy or bearish about the no economy way. based That's on cool. <laughs> some of these signals. So you get like all the location, David, the latitude, longitude, timestamp, but you'd also get um, whether somebody was in the cab or not in the cab. So you get cab utilization. And so you could sort of like put all these signals together and create a map of the city um, and potentially project, if you had some of the major cities, potentially correlate that to um, some of the signals in the wider market for consumer um, sort of consumer attitudes about spending, discretionary spend, which drives, you know, over 60% of the United States economy at least. Um, and, and so you could start to make models like that. Um, and then if you are really good at it, you could start to make models on individual stores if the stores are large enough, or you can make models based on shopping malls or gas stations or, you know, other things like so, that. And, and and what do you mean by a model, let's say on a retail, retail store or a gas yeah, station? You could, yeah, you could do some fancy analytics <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, some early incarnations of machine learning to uh, try and predict what the stock market was going to do based off of some of these movement patterns. And what specific retail stocks we're going to do, you know, you could do some correlations um, and figure out what specific retail stocks we're even going to do uh, based on this leading indicator that you might have, which is, you know, taxi cab ingresses and egresses. Okay. Um, now, of course, when you do things like this, there are loads of what, what's called spurious correlations that pop up. And so you have to be, you know, you have to apply a lot of rigor to these things. Um, but you know, it turns out if you're, if this data is so good for that and you're so good at it, then you should just start a hedge fund. Um, you shouldn't sell your data to anyone. You just start a hedge fund. True. But in fact, you know, we, we, um, we didn't see a ton of signal okay. in the taxi cab data, truth be told, but we, we made a system that could analyze location behavior patterns. And that was a system that was really interesting and attractive to lots of big telecommunications companies. Interesting. So for a project like that, how do you kind of at the beginning wrap your head around like what's interesting and what's not like how do you try to f figure out where is the signal versus the noise um i mean this applies to all yeah. projects but we could use we can use the, that project or a different one um but it's kind yeah of, well yeah. I'll, I'll i'll tell you in marketing there's a different standard for it than in healthcare oh, fair uh, enough. in marketing <laughs> in, in marketing the way that you 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 care um you care about spurious correlations but you don't care to the extent that you care about it in healthcare. Because in healthcare, if there's a spurious correlation and you follow it and you pre perhaps create a guideline around it, you, you end up hurting somebody, right, if you're wrong. In marketing, it just means, you know, a thousand more people get the ad that weren't supposed to get the ad. <laughs> yes. Maybe you wasted a, a few dollars on targeting people that shouldn't have been targeted in the first place. Or you missed a few dollars because um, you weren't targeting people who should have been targeted. Um, and so in marketing, it's, it's definitely a little bit looser. Spurious, there's a higher tolerance for spurious correlations. Um, so there are a couple ways that people do it, at least back then. There are a couple ways they do it back then. I'm sure it's evolved since then. Um, I'm definitely not the expert any longer in marketing. Uh, but um, back then, it was you started with an intuition, right? You, you might start with a few ideas that you give to the data people of when you think situations might arise or people might um, be more likely to click on an ad or be more likely to purchase something because we were really after the purchase, less about the click and more about the purchase. Um, and, you know, you create rules around that and then you test them uh, and see if they worked or not. And then you just go test after test after test in some cases. 
And then there's the opposite way of doing it where you just dump everything into a big pot and you let the machine learners, you know, do what's called semi-supervised learning. Uh, and so some of the data you know is um, some of the outcomes of what you do are known. So you know that in these specific circumstances for this pile of data, some people clicked on these ads and some people did not. And so you have labels for some of them, but then you kind of let the model like learn. Um, and then you apply that model and then you vigilantly watch that model to make sure it doesn't degrade over time. Um, and then as soon as it hits the point where it starts to degrade, then you're like, okay, we're new training set. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure it's far more sophisticated now, but that's how we did it back then. No, no, that's good, Ilvery. Okay. And we could talk about that all day, but let's uh, switch to uh, evidation and kind of more healthcare analytics and stuff you're working on now. I, can you uh, um, share what uh, – what, you know, what do you do at Evidation and uh, when you started the company and, um, yeah, if, you know, sure. number of employees Definitely. or any other stats you can provide, that would be a, it's always helpful. Sure. So uh, I am the president and co-founder of Evidation Health, and we are 23 people. We're funded by GE Healthcare and Stanford Healthcare, or I'm sorry, not GE Healthcare, GE Ventures, excuse me, and Stanford Healthcare. Um, we uh, are an elegant mix of um, people from my world, I'll call it, so technology, data science world, um, and uh, traditional healthcare background type folks, which turns out to be very difficult to merge those two cultures and those two backgrounds together. And so we're actually really proud of the fact that we've been able to do it. And we think that um, merging the two cultures has resulted in more innovative solutions for the market. And um, it's just a really different way to look at problems in healthcare and, and attempt to solve them. Um, and so very simply what Evidation Health does is um, we're trying to figure out what, what specific digital solutions, and these could be digital therapies, these could be services around the pill, they call them in pharma. Um, they could be disease management programs that have such, some sort of technology enablement. And they could be um, devices of all sorts, um, devices that people use in the home for home monitoring. It could be devices that people are wearing, the so wearable type devices. Um, so generally anything that, that patients are, are wearing or consuming outside of the hospital environment we're looking at. And so we're trying to evaluate out of all these digital solutions and device solutions, what works for whom? So what works for which patient? When does it work? And how much does it work? And how much is really interesting because it's not just how much um, how much clinical utility does it provide, but we're also interested in how much economic utility it provides. Because uh, in an increasingly outcomes-based or performance-based world, that clinical and economic utility together is what drives the decision at lots of major healthcare companies to pay or not pay. Gotcha. And uh, what are there sp specific projects you're working on in you know, around wearables mm -hmm. and digital health and, yeah, what are some uh, uh, specific Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one public thing we can talk about is uh, we partnered with a company called Crowdbed in the summer um, and did a, a project with them. We, we um, did what's called, we initiated a study um, and we worked with them to figure out, so Crowdbed, for those of you who don't know, and, and Jared, the CEO and founder of Crowdbed, is an amazing guy, but um, CrowdMed does crowd-based diagnostics of um, very difficult cases. So people who have been undiagnosed for years, they submit all of their historical records to CrowdMed, 
Cardbedd de-identifies all the records. Um, so it, it, it keeps the, the data very safe and de-identified. And then it distributes it to a network of physicians um, and clinicians who look at the case and then solve the case. And um, generally speaking, they solve the case. They give the diagnosis back to the patient. The patient goes you know, back to their physician or their hospital validates it. Um, and generally speaking, uh, you know, the folks, the study that we did sort of measured, okay, um, after they get their diagnosis, like what happens? What's the cost to the system before they get the diagnosis by a crowd med? What's the cost and impact to the system after they get the diagnosis? Um, and uh, in our study, we showed that, that actually getting that diagnosis done in this innovative way actually reduced um, load on the system, reduced cost, uh, and increased patient satisfaction overall. So um, that's one that's public, but that's a great example of the way that we might work with uh, some of these digital solutions in order to understand whether they're making an impact and how big that impact is on the system. Um, in other ways, we partner with um, pharma companies who are building, you know, services around their their, their drugs in a way. So um, the market has said, "Great, um, you've you've you know invented some therapy, uh, but we need you to go one step further, which is." help us with adherence. Um, we need you to start going at risk, at performance risk for some of these uh, therapies that you have, especially as they become more and more expensive when you talk about like, specialized therapy. Uh, and so a lot of these companies are trying to figure out what are the right digital services to put around their, their therapies to make them most effective in the real world. Um, and so we help them by providing not only the structure to do that, but some of the back-end technology to evaluate these things. Um, and then also uh, a ready population and their data access in order to evaluate whether the thing is working or not working. Interesting. And can you share much about the a pharma engagement, like how it works from the, they come to you with certain questions and then you kind of lay out a plan and what, you know, how does it work with, uh, you know, are they analyzing wearables or are they analyzing um yeah, pill. they're they're, oh. anal yeah, they're analyzing a, a bunch of stuff. But I'll I'll uh, I'll try to be super concrete without um, <laughs> divulging any special information, yes, yes. which is always like a tightrope. We can um, always add. So it. No. Let, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, let let's say uh, let's say there's um, a company who has created a rheumatoid a therapy for rheumatoid arthritis, or perhaps has been in market for a long time already. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic condition. Uh, you know, usually um, the the medication for this progresses as the disease progresses. So it might start with, you know, it might start with your physician saying, oh, do you want some exercise, eat right? It might progress into now you need some pills. It might then progress into actually you need to switch to an injectable, um, so a specialty molecule in order to help you with mobility, help you control some of the pain, et cetera, um, and help prevent further degradation of, of you know, your body essentially. Um, and so one problem in rheumatoid arthritis that, that people come to us with is it's very difficult to measure the progression of that disease, right? So besides sort of loose patient self-reported information when they go to see the physician every six months or a year, whatever it is, um, there's very little data that anybody has or very few tests that people can really run to understand like how a patient is going through those different phases that I mentioned. But one obvious way that you could measure that, if the patient was willing, um, is, you know, the patient could wear a device 
right, to measure um, their steps every day or use accelerometer data to understand their mobility and how it's, um, and how it's progressing along to the shape of the disease. Um, and so as people move through this disease state, um, sometimes they become less mobile. Uh, and so understanding all of that might take, you know, giving and outfitting the patient with a special device and then analyzing all that data and creating an algorithm that associates those different patterns with disease progression. So that's the first step that we tend to help companies with is sometimes we already have the data. Sometimes we already have like lots of patients with that particular condition with lots of behavior and activity data. And we can just do, we can just help them with the analytics to do the correlation. How do Once you, they're through that step. Oh, how, do you, how do you already have that data? Is it from a past project or do yep. you uh, get it from, okay. Yeah. So we are partnered across the ecosystem with um, payers and providers who um, have some of this data. And they, we know that they have some of this data because often they're the ones powering all of this data into their system. So that's one way that we know. So we've been able to, in partnership with some of our close partners, you know, combine this wearable data with um, health data specifically in a de-identified and privacy-safe manner to figure out, you know, are, are there some data that are available already to figure out some of these associations. Um, the second way that we do it is we run an independent panel of, of consumers who have tracked things for years and who from time to time will opt into um, opt into giving us access to their data in order to do some of these things in a very de-identified privacy safe way. Interesting. And so what, from the payers perspective, what, what type of data would they give you, let's say around this rheumatoid arthritis example, that would be helpful? Yeah, they, they, they might, um, in some cases they, you know, there are lots of companies in general, not just payers, but companies in general who, um, allow people to participate in wellness programs where they're giving lots of activity tracker data, lots of diet tracking data, sleep data, et cetera, um, in order for the, the company to provide like a better wellness program for them. And so in some cases, they have some of that data. And so in a consumer opt-in way, um, we can get access to some of that data. Interesting. Okay. So everything, everything in the system is designed to be, you know, end patient or end consumer opt-in. Like we, we are yes. not the company that, that just sort of does things behind the scenes. We literally go out and ask everybody. We run an IRB control process for all of these things, but we believe very, very strongly that consumers could, should own and control, you know, a lot of their own data. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And, uh, and I think I cut you off. You, you were going through the, you know, a typical engagement do you remember the right, you were both right, going to step right. So two. then the, the, yeah. <laughs> the second step for this yeah. company that might be targeting rheumatoid arthritis is, you know, okay, we understand sort of the markers of disease progression and we understand sort of the characteristic of some of the, the patients involved. And we, uh, we have either identified an app in the market or we've created our own app and we want to test and learn it. And so literally we drop that application um, we handle sort of the back end of it. So we make sure that we're tracking all the right data on the app. We make sure that there are algorithms to start characterizing people as they use the app. Um, so we do all the back end work and then we're able to just drop the app in a population and watch that population use and consume that app. Um, and maybe in using and consuming that app, you know, this company learns a lot about how um, patients engage with it. They learn what works, what doesn't work. And we help them optimize that app for the highest level of stickiness possible. 
And then we start to get a sense for whether it's going to drive an outcome or not, whether it's actually going to increase medication adherence, either primary or secondary medication adherence. We actually learn whether people like the app or not. We actually learn, you know, whether there are other types of outcomes um, that the app can improve or the service can improve. And once we have a good sense of that, like we have some indicators of promise, then we go to what's called evidence generation, which is literally designing and running a prospective, in most cases, randomized controlled study, where we're literally separating out the exact impact of that service on clinical and economic utility, so on cost and on health outcomes. Huh. So what would be an example of that, that kind of that third step? Yeah, the third step is... Um, so CrabDev is one example of that, where literally we, you know, designed and ran a prospective RCT. Gotcha. Um, it, you know, uh, so we're we're um, working with a few other digital health companies too that are unannounced. Um, we don't love we don't love to talk about our clients. If our client if clients want to talk about, you know, partnering with us, that's great. Otherwise, we really want to respect um, privacy uh, and confidentiality. But um, some examples are, you know, diabetes management programs. Some examples are, you know, medication reminders, things like this. Examples are, you know, there are, you know, over 600 DPPs in the United States, these diabetes prevention programs. Um, so there's a whole plethora of different types of uh, programs, let's call them, that need to generate evidence that they actually impact, you know, people's health. Huh. So you guys really provide kind of the- – from beginning to end, you know, from the initial kind of questions all the way to the uh, the clinical studies, you're involved. I, I like to call it, yeah, I like to call it a pipeline. Okay. And the common thread, the common thread that you need in each step of this pipeline is access to people and access to data. And that's the, really the core competency of the company is to provide access to people and data who are willing to participants in these, these things, willing participants in their health willing participants in research, um, and really managing and making sure that, you know, there's informed consent both ways, that there's compensation when appropriate, that there's data sharing back with the patients, et cetera. That's really our core competency, and then people can build solutions on top of that. Interesting. So you guys get involved with a variety, which is cool. So do you – is it – around more consulting or do you guys kind of have like an analytics platform that you use or what, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. What, what have you built over the years? Yeah. So uh, over the years we've built um, a lot of things to facilitate all the different solutions on top of, you know, the people and data access platform. Um, and so that includes things like we have a study product. So literally if you want to design and do test and learn, I call it, or evidence generation, there's a product that we can spin up a study, um, get people involved in that study, get access to the different data elements that you need, um, do what's called protocol, protocol compliance during the study, which is essentially like very smart messaging. And then we have all the connectors, to all the different data elements that you'd want to include in that study. Wow. Um, and, and so all of that is, is pretty turnkey. Um, I think the slowest part of launching a study is actually the work to design the study and make sure that we're designing it properly. And in many cases, we'll partner with a you know principal investigator. In some cases, um, some companies uh, you know want to use our own health outcomes team. That's great too. Um, we're super super flexible on that. So, gotcha. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's a quite a useful tool because and, and most of the studies are involved with involved with have some type of digital health uh, component to it I mean, it wouldn't be 
you're not a, a CR, CRO with just doing a typical trial, really. It'll have some type of wearable, or would it have a genetic yeah, component? Yeah, that's right. That, that's right. So, um, it, it, so our focus today is really on things with digital components to them. Um, it, it strikes us as, um, you know, or it, it strikes us as something a little bit unique and different um, to, uh, you know, run these run these projects in a way um, that provides for, um, you know, it requires like a different level of analytic and a different level of, level of information from the, the patient population that I think traditional CROs just aren't well equipped to provide. Um, so uh, an example is, it, it's one thing if you go, you know, if a CRO might partner with uh, um, a data aggregator potentially and just aggregate a bunch of data, but then it's like, what do you do with that data? Well, we've spent, you know, I personally have spent over a decade analyzing behavior data. The data science team uh, at our company um, has already built a bunch of behavior algorithms that people can use. The team is already well, you know, has a product that cleans all the data as it brings it in, normalizes it properly for behavior analytics, um, merges the behavior data with the health data, which is not easy or trivial. Um, and so there's a lot of pre-work done in order to get the outcome that everybody needs. Oh, wow. So, all right, so your platform could take in the data from, let's say, the, the pharma or the healthcare network and then merge it with mm-hmm. uh, and, and That's okay, right. interesting. So, with devices, with, you know, location data, with all sorts of behavior data or behavior signals from the real world. Gotcha, interesting. Okay. And so I got a question. We yeah, Last night I was in the urgent care with my daughter and I was sitting there you know the room oh, I'm sorry oh yeah oh, it, 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 it was okay yeah uh-huh. it was <laughs> and so I was looking around the room and of course a lot of the equipment there looks like it's back you know when 30 years ago when I would have been in the urgent care when I was a kid <laughs> and uh it's pretty much the same so like, you're doing so a lot of interesting things and probably a lot of impactful things and actually we should talk about some of the value you've seen that you've created or discovered but before that um, you know, what's kind of limiting uh, a lot of these uh, new technologies or new ideas or new uh, models from actually, like, getting out in the real world? And uh, what would you do, do to try to get this uh, this new technology out there faster? And it could just – technology could just be the analytics you're running. Yeah, I, so uh, we come from so – I, I come from mostly the technology world, and – yeah, it's interesting in, in technology. So there's this this meme going on. I'm going to riff just a bit, so my answer might be a little bit scattered. There's this meme going on in healthcare that, you know, consumers don't pay. Um, and that's really what's holding the industry back in some ways, is that consumers don't pay. Um, and so when consumers don't pay, uh, which I'll argue that consumers actually do pay, we pay our health insurance premiums like every single month, like yeah. the drumbeat, um, you know, but um, maybe the the finer grain example, the finer grain way to say that is consumers don't always decide what programs to use. Um, so there's this mean that consumers don't pay, and therefore, since consumers don't pay, um, you have to convince some of these big healthcare companies and providers uh, to pay for your program, right, or to share costs with consumers for your program. Um, and so the cascade effect of that, of course, is. Um, at least for, for digital products that are newer in market, even for some medical devices and things that are new in, in, in market, um, it, you have to generate evidence. So you have to like walk into a payer, you have to walk into a self-insured employer, you have to walk into, you know, um, 
some of these decision makers who tend to decide what gets reimbursed, what gets partially paid for, what gets partially reimbursed, et cetera. You, you have to show them that your widget um, actually impacts the system in a positive way, reduces costs, improves outcomes. And actually, the bar is even much higher. So it can't just improve um, outcomes and reduce costs, but it also has to do that within a 12-month ROI period, which is kind of insane, yeah, yeah. Um, especially <laughs> when it comes to especially when it comes to health. Um, and so that, that tends to be the mantra of both. Um, I, I would say that that's not enough. Uh, so it's great that you've proven that perhaps you've proven some clinical and economic utility. And of course, we're always happy to help people do that. Um, but then the other thing that you have to worry about is how do I get consumers or patients engaged with my program? Um, and if you have the water there, but you can't bring the horses to water, then you're just you're just kind of screwed anyway, right? So um, <laughs> the thing that people aren't paying enough attention to is you know that consumer engagement piece, and if you don't have that, you're you're just dead in the water already. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. And I, I think we're kind of running out of time here, but I, I I am curious if you have like an interesting kind of case study that you know. And one of your projects, we found like a really interesting result based on your analysis, um, or something that added value, or you know something uh, the insurance company or health network could do to um, improve health outcomes. So we um, that you one, can share. one example, <laughs> yeah, one one example that that I think is public right now. Um, so we uh, so we're behavior analytics people. We look at this type of data in a very different way, I think, than other folks do. So one thing that we're really proud of is um, we looked at people's patterns of behavior over time, like over a very long period of time, and correlated those patterns of behavior. These are people tracking like their sleep and their diet and their steps in some cases. Uh, in other cases, they're tracking their weight, their blood pressure, um, glucose readings, et cetera. They're just tracking things on a regular basis. Um, and so we were able to correlate or find a correlation between how habitual people are, and not surprisingly, their medication adherence. And so now you, you have a tool or you have an algorithm, let's call it, um, that's been validated across 300,000 people across disease areas, dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, um, as a proxy for medication adherence. Um, and also we're proving out other things, that this, this habit measure, we'll call it, or this routine score, we call it, uh, measures. Um, and now if you're able to just take, you know, habit patterns, the behavior patterns of both, and identify who's going to need help when uh, and how expensive help they're going to need versus other folks. So there's some definitely some folks in the system who need a little bit more help um, sticking with a routine, need a little bit more support, perhaps need live coaching a little bit more than others, especially when they get discharged from a hospital with specific conditions. Um, and then there are other people who are what I'll call set it and forget it type, where you give them, you equip them with instructions, you give them reminders, but they can follow a routine like pretty easily. And so now you have a way to sort of segment your population by their behavior pattern so that you can attach the right behavior program to them and reallocate your resources, your expensive resources to the people who need them most versus the people who would be bothered by them really don't need it at all. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. And and how how do you tease out kind of the habitual pattern? You know, is it do they eat breakfast at the same time every morning, or they go to the storage the same time each week, or 
what are you looking at? To... Yeah. You know, we published a paper on it. It's published on Plus One. Okay. Um, and, and so you can go into the, the deep details of it if you'd like. Okay. Uh, anyone really can. Um, and we're happy to tweet it so everybody has it. But, uh, you know, it, it turns out that um, over time, it, it's not just the time of day that people do things in a routine manner, but it's the quantity at which they do them. Um, so how much do they, how much do they, how many steps do they take a day? Is it consistent? You know, how much do they track their diet? Is it consistent? You know, do they track three meals a day? Do they track two meals a day? It actually doesn't matter the number of meals they track a day as long as it's consistent. Um, so huh. consistency is key. So sleep is kind of the same way. Um, if you, it doesn't matter if you're a four hour sleeper, some people are versus a 10 hour sleeper. Some people are 10 hour sleepers as long as you're really consistent about it. The moment that you um, are inconsistent about it, it impacts your BMI, it in, impacts, I'm sure, other productivity measures in your life that we haven't been able to study yet. Um, but for sure, it impacts your BMI. Interesting. Okay. And uh, where and where do you want to uh, take a evidation? Like, do you want to get more into the genetic component? And maybe you already are. We haven't talked about it. I mean, you can kind of call it digital health. But, um, yeah, what's your... Uh, your future look like i you know i'm personally obsessed with the genetic component of all of this stuff <laughs> okay um i think it'll be really rich and interesting uh i don't know at what pace the company uh attacks that that quite yet um but really you know what what we're really after at the end of the day is um creating a really interesting connected population of people um who want to be more involved in their health and being more involved in their health might be participating in research that um, folks can understand uh, what's working and what's not working, um, participating in their own health uh, by uh, providing data that helps us match them with the right programs just for them in their unique situation, and then um, encouraging people to enroll in these programs that will really make a material difference in their health outcomes. Like that's really what we're about at the end of the day. Um, and then all these solutions on top are just innovative ways for other folks to engage in this, this system of people who want to be really involved in their health. Huh. Yeah, well, that's a great mission. must be uh, pretty easy to attract a decent talent with uh, that vision. Um, I mean, it's always hard. But, yeah, you have quite, you have quite a vision. must be nice to wake up each day knowing that you're – It is. Cheap. It is. It's actually really fun to wake up each day and think about think about this problem. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, I think we're uh, out of time here, unfortunately. Uh, this is a uh, this is fascinating, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on in another year to talk more. But uh, definitely appreciate your time, Christine, and hear all your insights. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>